following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know Him and make Him known. There's a, a story I've heard a few times, and it may be legend. Uh, it, it may not be true. I don't know. I haven't actually been able to verify if this actually happened, but there's this story that, uh, that is told of, of famous Civil War General Stonewall Jackson. Um, and this is a story that came out of what's called the Valley Campaign as he and his army marched through the Shenandoah Valley in 1862. And the story goes that Jackson and his army uh, were marching through the valley and they came to this river. And the river was too deep and too wide for them to just roll right across. And there were no uh, viable crossings or bridges nearby. And so Jackson gathered together uh, all the leaders of his army and the best engineers that he had. And he said, listen, we have got to get across this bridge as soon as possible. Let's get this done. And so all of the engineers and, and the rest of the leaders go off into a tent nearby. And they start working, drawing up plans, trying to figure out, okay, how's the best way to do this? And as, as they are stalled, uh, Jackson's wagon master, the one who's in charge of their wagons, carrying all their gear and supplies and everything, comes up. And he says, well, what's, you know, what's going on? And Jackson says, we got to get across this river as soon as possible. And the wagon master walks off and immediately starts picking up rocks and tree limbs and, and pieces of, of wood and planks, wherever he can get them. And in the early hours of the next morning, Jackson's wagon master comes to him and he says, General Jackson, all of the wagons have crossed the river and we're ready to go when you say go. And Jackson says, well, where, where, are my, where are my engineers? Where are they? And the wagon master simply said, they're still in the tent drawing up plans. See, the preparation of the engineers was a good thing right? It was, a, it was a good thing that they tried to think through, okay, what's, what's the best way we can do this? But when push came to shove, the work had to get done. It just had to be done. And the engineer's plans and drawings weren't getting the work done the way it needed to when it needed to. You ever find yourself in the engineer's shoes, right? Where, where you hear the call, you know what needs to be done, you want to do it right, so you start planning. And you start working out every little detail, trying to make sure it's in place, trying to make sure this is going to be exactly the way it's supposed to, to be. But in the process, you actually keep yourself from engaging in the mission at hand. When the mission ahead of us is clear, how do we faithfully push forward? That's the question. How do we faithfully push forward? Last week, we talked about how to understand the calling that, that God has given us. Today, Nehemiah shows how to move forward from the, the preparation into action. In chapter 2, he's going to show us four steps in responding in faith-filled obedience the first thing we're going to see is if we're going to move forward from preparation into action with a faith-filled response, we must wait with patience. We must wait with patience. Watch what happens in Nehemiah chapter 2, just verse 1. It says, During the month of Nisan, 
in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. Okay, stop right there. If you remember last week, in Nehemiah 1, verse 1, we were told that, that the book starts in the month of Kislev, which is November or December, right, in that time frame. And in that time frame, God starts stirring in Nehemiah's heart. He gives Nehemiah all these little things that and Nehemiah's like, okay, so here's what I need to do. Okay, I, I've got this vision. I, I understand the calling that I've been given. But then chapter 2 opens in the month of Nisan, which is actually March, April. So four months later, for four months, right now in chapter 2, there's this time of festival. It's a celebration in the kingdom, and Nehemiah's role as cupbearer, which is what we were told in, in chapter 1, Nehemiah's role as cupbearer brings him before the king. He brings the king's wine to him in this time of celebration. And what's going to happen is it's at this time that God is going to give him an opportunity to act upon that which God has been preparing him for. But this comes only after four months of sitting, weeping, mourning, fasting, and praying. Four months. Nehemiah knows what needs to happen, but he waits patiently. Patience stinks, right? Now, anybody disagree with me? Patience stinks. <laughs> I don't enjoy being patient. And, and there's some of you, I know, some of you are incredibly patient people, either by nature or by years of training. But most of us, and, and again, this includes me, most of us struggle with patience. But we also know that there is power in patience. In Proverbs 16, verse 32, it says, Patience is better than power, and controlling one's temper better than capturing a city. Right? Patience is valuable. And when it comes to answering the call that God has given us, there are times where we just have to wait. Right? And I know that sounds somewhat contradictory when we're saying, well, how do we move from preparation to action? Well, you wait. You wait to act. But the reality is we cannot act until God gives us the opportunity and God opens the door to act. And sometimes we will have to wait for that time. Right? If we're going to faithfully follow God's call, then we must learn to wait. And that will mean being patient in a lot of different areas of our lives. Sometimes it will mean that we have to be patient with people. Because the fact of the matter is, other people are not called the same way that you are called. Sometimes we go, well, God gave me this call, so everybody better jump on board and do what I say and come with me. They better be ready right now. But that's just not the way it works. We want to we move into action what God called us to, then we have to be patient with people. We have to spend time listening to them. What does God look, put on their heart? How is God calling them to act and to respond? Maybe encouraging them and what God has called them to do, encouraging them in maybe how we work together on this. Maybe God's going to call you to lead people through that process. But there's a patience to that, of not pushing them at a pace that they're not ready to go.
we're to be patient with people. Sometimes we'll have to be patient with the events, right? Ministries develop slowly. And that doesn't matter if it's a ministry of the church or the ministry that God has given you within the confines of your own personal life. Ministries develop slowly. They rarely come about overnight. Sometimes we have to be patient in seeing that develop and seeing that come to fruition. Maybe we need to be patient with ourselves. This should be no shock because I've told you this before, but you're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. But if we are faithfully trusting and following our God, then we are still becoming who he has created us to be. Maybe God is developing in this time that he's calling us to wait. Maybe he's developing in us what we need for the mission at hand. Maybe he's developing something in us that we don't yet have. And so while we know the calling, it's not time to act because God is still working in us. Sometimes we have to just be patient with ourselves. I think sometimes we have to be patient with God. Because God rarely does what we want him to do when we want him to do it. Amen? You can say amen. That's true. God rarely does what we want him to do when we want him to do it. And what happens is when we're not patient with God, when we're not waiting for him, for his timing, for his purposes, then we usually end up with one of two responses. We either A, give up. Right? This, is, this is what we see in, in Jonah. Right? Jonah's a perfect example. Because in Jonah chapter 4, if you remember the story of Jonah, after God says go and Jonah says no, Jonah tries to run, God sends the storm, Jonah gets thrown into the sea, God sends the fish, swallows Jonah, Jonah goes, yeah, I messed up, okay, God, I'll go where you want to go. He goes, that's right, you will, and the fish spits Jonah out onto dry land. Then Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh, where he didn't want to go, and he starts preaching the gospel, and the people hear it, they understand it, they repent, and God relents from destroying the city. And then if you remember Jonah's next reaction, it was to go out and celebrate the fact that all these people had come to know the Lord, right? No. Jonah goes and sits up on a hillside and is like, see God, I knew that's what you were going to do. I don't know why you even needed me to go in the first place. And then in Jonah chapter 4, verse 3, Jonah says, and now, Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I wanted you to destroy these people. You didn't do it, and you're not going to do it. Which... Which is interesting because 100 years later, if you read the book of Nahum, God does destroy Nineveh. It's 100 years later. (laughs) But Jonah's like, you didn't do what I wanted when I wanted you to do it. So it's better that I die. Right? He just gives up. (laughs) And when God doesn't do what we want him to do when we want him to do it, if we are not patient, we will either, one, give up, or two, we'll try to take care of it ourselves. Remember when God called Abram? And said, Abram, right? You may know him as Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your descendants as, as many as the stars in the sky, right? And, and Abraham's a 75-year-old man at this time. And years go by, and there's no child. And years go by, and there's no child. And years go by, and there's no child. And finally, in Genesis 16, verse 1 and 2, it says, Abram's wife, Sarah, had not borne any children to him. Right? They're getting restless. 
God hasn't worked in the timing that they think he should work. But she owned an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. Sarah said to Abraham, said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build my family. Do you hear it? God said, you're going to build my family, but God hasn't done it in my timing. So go to my servant. Maybe I can, maybe I can build my family through her. She doesn't give up. She still wants that blessing. She still wants to see God care, but she decides, you know what? God's not working fast enough. I'll do it in my own time. When we are impatient with God, we either give up or we try to take care of ourselves. Neither one of them is good, and neither one of them will ever work out well for us. Because the reality is, God's timing and God's purposes are perfect. I'm not asking you to understand that. I'm not asking you to like that. I'm not saying that will feel fair. But God's timing and God's purposes are perfect. We must be patient. He will deliver at just the right time. And when he gives you a mission, he gives you a calling, he gives you a purpose, he will present the opportunity for that at just the right time. But when God calls us to wait, will we trust in the timing of his plan? We wait with patience. And oftentimes, we will have to wait. But when the waiting is over, there comes a time to, number two, step out in faith. Step out in faith. Watch what happens as Nehemiah steps out in faith in verses 2 through 8. It says, so the king said to me, right? And remember, this is now Nehemiah has taken the cup to the king at the time of this festival. It says, so the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? There is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. The king with the queen seated beside him asked, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's forest, rebuild the gates of the temple's forest, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my requests. For the gracious hand of my God was on me. Step out in faith. Nehemiah's sadness is confronted by the king. He says, I've never been sad in the king's presence before, but I came that day and there was a sadness on my face. And the king sees it and asks him about it. Now, this is dangerous for Nehemiah. If you you don't understand the the cultural context here, Nehemiah is a servant of the king at festival time. If he does anything to bring down the mood of the festival, he can be put to death. 
So for him to come at festival time, I mean, for him to come at any time with sadness on his face before the king could mean his death, but especially at a festival time. Nehemiah says, I was terrified at this moment. But Nehemiah is also prepared. Because again, in his waiting of four months, he knows exactly how to respond to the king. Right? The king says, okay, so, so what is it that you want? And Nehemiah stops, he prays for saying, he's like, okay, let me, God, I, like, and we don't know what Nehemiah prays here. We're not told anything. I this, as I read it, I picture Nehemiah sitting there just for that split second going, God, give me the boldness to do what you've been calling me to do because this could end my life. Father, don't let me be afraid. Father, don't let me back down. God, give me the boldness to step. And after four months of preparation, Nehemiah has all the information he needs right at the tip of his fingers, right? He's like, well, I'm, I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. And I could use these letters to help get the stuff that we need to do this thing that you have called us to. And again, all of this is dangerous because at any point, if the king doesn't like what Nehemiah is saying, he could have Nehemiah put to death. <laughs> and with that death clearly on the table, Nehemiah still trusts God's calling. He still moves forward in the face of danger and acts upon what God has stirred in his heart. And what's more, Nehemiah understands in this that this is all God's power working in him and through him, right? Nehemiah doesn't say, and the king granted my request because I'd been a good servant, because I had all my ducks in a row, because I did everything I needed to do, and so the king did what, what I wanted him to do. No, what, what, why does the king do what, what Nehemiah requests? Because the gracious hand of my God was on me. That's why Nehemiah can step out in faith in spite of the danger ahead of him because he knows this isn't about him. This is about God's glory and God's might and God's strength and God's mission. And so he can be bold in the face of any opposition and he can step out in faith. Lawrence of Rome was a, a, a church deacon uh, who died in, in 258 A.D., he was put to death by the emperor of Rome because he refused to offer tithes to the emperor. He was the deacon of a, a church in a, a poor area. And the people didn't even have enough money to food, feed themselves, so he took their tithes and offerings to the church. And they served the Lord and they fed the people. And the emperor didn't like this, of course. And so he came to Lawrence and he said... Where's, where's my money? Lawrence, where's my, where's my money? And he said, I don't serve you. He said, these people I have fed with God's money. And as you can imagine, the emperor does what emperors tended to do in that day. Put him to death. And didn't just kill him. Cooked him over hot coals which is exactly what you think it is. To be cooked over hot coals, they took like a metal grate and they laid it down over these coals and then they'd lay somebody face down on that metal grate and stoke the fire until it cooked their flesh. Lawrence, as he's being put to death, refused to cry, refused to call out for mercy to the emperor. 
In fact, the story of his death says there's only one thing he said. As his flesh was cooking, he said, I'm done on this side. Turn me over and eat. That's boldness in the face of death, right? He was bold and he remained faithful even in the face of death. Why? Because he had faith in his God. His death in this world meant nothing to him. It was about his faithfulness to God's calling to care for the people, to love the church. He was faithful and fearless to the very end. Listen, in your calling, you may not face death, but there will be dangers for you. If you're going to move forward in what God has called you to do, you will have to step out in faith because there will be dangers for you. They may be relational dangers with friends or with family who don't understand this faith that is so important to you. It may be an occupational dangers because you refuse to give the extra time and attention that your job calls you to give because you have decided, no, 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 God is first. There may be financial dangers for you. There may be emotional dangers. And go on and on and on. There are all kinds of dangers that you will face. But the question is, do you trust Jesus enough to act when the standards of the world around you say this is not worth it? Because I guarantee for Lawrence, the people who weren't part of the church would look at that and go, man, just give the emperor some money. And I'm sure if you were fly on the wall as Nehemiah went before the king, they'd be like, dude, just smile. Don't like, like, look like you're okay. Don't, don't talk to the king that way. But there's faithfulness. Because there's a trust in who Jesus is, who God is, what he is doing. And if we trust in God's provision and his nature as a good and sovereign king, then we can trust that if he calls us to act, he will lead us into what is best. So where today does our faith lie? Does it lie in what we see in the situations around us? Or does it rest in the Lord? We wait patiently. And when the time comes, we step out in faith. And in doing so, number three, we act with purpose. We act with purpose. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 18. Verse 9 says, um, I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king, the king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. In verse 11, it says, After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night, took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's gate. Now, he's just going to walk around the city, and the next couple of verses are going to 
be a picture of him walking around the city. And then in verse 17 and 18, it says, uh, he gathers the people together and it says, so I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, right? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. See, after Nehemiah's preparation and and consideration, he's not content to let God's stirring in his heart be left on a theoretical level. When it comes time to act, Nehemiah acts. And verse 9 through 13 say that that he he did everything he needed to do. He handed the letters to the, the people he needed to hand the letters to so he had safe passage. And then he goes to Jerusalem, which, by the way, from from where Nehemiah starts to Jerusalem would have been about a 900-mile trip that would have taken three months. So he says here, I arrived in Jerusalem and I rested three days. Duh. (laughs) Right? You make a 900-mile trip that takes you three months? Yeah, he rests for three days. And then he goes out and he surveys the work ahead travels around the city, sees all of the the mess of the broken down walls. And after taking stock of the job at hand, he addresses the people of Jerusalem. And his message is very simple and very clear. He says, listen, with the way this city is, we are not safe. God's city is in disgrace, but the Lord has called us to this work. And he will provide. Now let's go. And the people see it and they say, we're with you. Right? It would have been really easy for Nehemiah to hear this call from God and to get approval from the king and then go, okay, we're going to just send some people out. Right? Or maybe we won't get around to doing this, to acting upon this calling that God has given. But he refused to leave it as this theoretical thing or this calling out there like, ah, someday I want to get to Jerusalem. Someday I want to get all the way out there, that 900 miles, that three-month journey. I'm just not ready to do it right now. I'm not ready to take that on. Someday I'll, I'll get there. But he hears the clarity of the calling and he acts. He goes. In the book of Revelation, chapter three, in, in one of the letters to the churches, we get the, the letter to the church in Sardis. And it, says, and it says to them, I know your works, church. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief. And you have no idea what hour I will come upon you. The judgment on this church, what we should hear in this, is that the church knew the truth. Right? Do you hear? He says, you have a reputation for being alive. You make yourselves look pretty good. You look like you're doing the right stuff, but you are actually dead. And he says, don't forget what you have received and heard. He says, listen, you know the truth of the gospel. You know your calling. You know your mission. You know why God has put you here in this place at this time for this reason. But you refuse to do anything about it. It's a great theoretical head knowledge that you guys have. Congratulations. You're failing. The church knew the truth, but it was still dead 
because the knowledge didn't translate to action. There are so many Christians and so many churches that talk about the Bible and, and we recite scripture and we're happy to leave our faith in the theoretical realm. We know all the answers, but that's fine. And just like the church in Sardis, this is a danger for us because we can know all the answers. We can sing praises to God. We can rejoice in the redemption of Jesus Christ and yet walk through the world in a way that looks nothing like the calling God has given us to know him and love him and serve him with all of our hearts. And if we want to know the joy and the satisfaction of the life of a true servant of Jesus Christ, we must be willing to act. We must be willing to get our hands dirty and pour into the mission at hand. And as we say often, this looks very different for every one of us. There's not a one-size-fits-all for how this works. Right? For you, that might mean getting involved in some ministry, serving one of our student ministries. Maybe it might mean getting together with a, a few other people to, to walk through life together, whether that's reading scripture together or maybe even just getting together for coffee or actually going for walks together. Don't do that now. Wait a couple months before you start that one. But finding ways to, to, to fulfill whatever calling God has put in your heart. Maybe for you it means starting to tithe. Maybe you've never tithed in your life. And that's what God has called you to do, right? I don't know how this is going to look for any one of you. But I know that if we're going to know the joy and the satisfaction of the Christian life, it cannot be some theoretical knowledge that we have of, yeah, this is what Christians do, and this is what believers do, and that's great. Now leave me alone and let me do what I want to do. Whatever God is calling you to do, it's going to require you to act. James 4, 17, James says, you know the good you ought to do, but don't do it, it's what? Sin. I think sometimes we think, well, if I know the good I ought to do, but don't do it, I might be kind of lazy, but it's okay. No, no, no. James says, listen, if you know what God's called you to do and you refuse to do it, you refuse to act, it's a sin. So the question is, are we ready to act? Are we ready today to act? As Nehemiah acts, he also shows us how to continue in God's calling. And finally, in verses 19 through 20, he shows us that we must proceed with confidence. Watch how he, he finished this. 19, when Sambal the Heronite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply, the God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. All right, as the work begins, Nehemiah and the, the people of Jerusalem face their first opposition. Samballat, Tobiah, and Geshem seek to hold back this work of God. But Nehemiah reminds them and in doing so, reminds the people of Israel that this work is to God's glory and is under his control. It's not about them. It's not about their human effort. 
It's about the fact that the God of the heavens has called them to this and he will provide everything they need. And that gives them the confidence, even in the face of opposition, to continue moving forward. And we've, we've hit on this uh, over the last couple weeks, but when we recognize our calling in Christ and the mission that God sets before us, we can rest assured that he will work it out to his glory. God never promises to work the mission out to the way we want it to be or the way we want it to look or the way we think it should finish up. But he does promise to work all things together for our good and for his glory. Nehemiah has a very bold and matter-of-fact approach to opposition, right? He looks at the guys, he's like, listen, this is about God, not you. Get out. This is the same confidence that we can carry. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, the apostle and Paul, in the closing to his letter in Corinthians, right? he says this, he says, listen, church, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous. And when he says be courageous, the actual literal Greek phrase there is act like a man. Act like a man, right? Which is a, a Greek idiom that means be courageous. He says be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like a man, be strong, right? And he's not giving some male chauvinistic line here of like, well, men are strong and so be like a man. no. He's reminding us of how we are to conduct ourselves. And that's with a boldness, a clarity of knowing that God has made us who he's called us to be. So we stand firm. We stand strong. We refuse to back down to what God has called us to do. Listen, if we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we remember the fact that the God who created the heavens and the earth, who has absolutely no reason to love those who reject him and run from him, you and me, but he still continues to pursue us and love us and wrap his arms around us and forgive us when we repent of our sins and run to him, when he sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be born in a manger in Bethlehem, to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, to rise victoriously and deliver us completely, to give to us something that we could never earn and could never attain by our very best of actions. If we understand that, let me ask you this, what's going to stand in the way of God's mission? If he's already taken care of all of that, Right? The God who created the heavens and the earth with a word from his mouth has loved you and saved you. Who's going to overwhelm him? Who's going to overcome him? The correct answer is nobody. Nothing. Listen, if we are running after Jesus, then we don't have to worry about the naysayers and the negativity that we find around us that's seeking to slow God's work in our hearts and in our lives and in the world around us. We proceed in his calling with confidence because he is God and he has called us to this. This is why in, in 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, one of these great verses, God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but one of power and love and sound judgment or self-control, depending on your translation. Why has he done that? Because he's God and he's taking care of everything. We can be confident in him. That question is, are we fully confident in our identity? Are we confident in the calling that God has given us? Do we believe he is enough? Last week, once again, we were reminded that we are all called by God in his purposes to do something. And that our responsibility is to to learn to seek clarity and prepare ourselves to respond. And that response then is to be carried out with patience, with faith, with purpose, and with confidence. And in this, we find that God's strength is poured out on us to act according to his will and according to his calling. And as we act according to his will and his calling, we get to celebrate the joy and the hope of living in light of his perfect plan for our lives. So once again, the question is not, has God called you to action for his kingdom? Because he undoubtedly has. The question is, how will we respond when God calls? Church family, may we be ready this week to step into whatever work Jesus puts in our hearts and before our hands. Let us patiently, faithfully, purposefully, and confidently put his will before ours, no matter how uncomfortable that may be. And in doing so, may the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of Jesus Christ be more and more evident to us and to those around us as we see his purposes brought to bear. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you are the great and awesome God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. That in Jesus Christ, we have salvation and redemption from the sin that plagues our human bodies. And by faith, we are filled with your Holy Spirit that we might love you and serve you with all that we have and all that we are. And Father, we know that you have called each of us to work in your kingdom, to purposes, missions. And we pray that you would continue to bring clarity to that in our lives. And as you do, Father, give us the boldness and the willingness to act, to follow you. Whether that seems, whether that seems crazy or not, may we simply be ready to act. Because we know that your will is perfect, your plans are, are best because we trust you. So Father, may you work in and through this people that we might bring the light of your love and salvation to the world around us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. 
If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.